0: How would it be if you woke up one morning and you realized suddenly, I have been working against myself all my life. And you realize it's not her fault, it's not his fault, it's not this or that thing. It's like, I have done it to myself. Let me ask you, have you ever had that realization? I remember having that one time and realizing that it wasn't his fault, it was my fault. I was really, really, well, I was underwhelmed, let's put it that way. And I was unimpressed with myself and I'm thinking, wow, I'm wrong. I wasn't set up for that. I was glad I found out because then I could do something about it. But what would happen if you never found out that you were working against yourself? Wouldn't that be tragic? And everything that you were afraid to lose, you lost. Wouldn't that be horrible? Well, that is gonna happen to a lot of people. We're going to see it happen to one guy here who never realized he was his own worst enemy and he lost everything. Now, the reason why it's here in the Bible is that God does not want us to lose everything. He actually wants us to lose our worst enemy, ourselves. So I'm reading in 1 Samuel 18. We're picking up a story. We're gonna jump into the middle of it here. It says, now when he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to a sword and his bow and his belt. Before we look at everything else that I've been talking about, we have this, Jonathan making a covenant with David. Now what's happened here is that the Israeli army has been completely flummoxed for 40 days while this champion Goliath, who is like nine and a half feet tall, comes out and basically despises and taunts and mocks Israel. Send out a guy to me, and we'll fight together, and if he wins, we'll all be your slaves, but if I win, then you'll all be our slaves. of course, nobody takes him on. Everybody's scared to death. And David says, well, I'll do it. He's this little kid. And he goes out there, slings a stone, breaks Goliath's skull, cuts his head off, and all the army of the Israelis go, yeah! And they go out there, big victory against the Philistines. This is where we pick up the story here. And David is speaking with Saul, and when he gets done, Jonathan goes, I love this guy. Now what does Jonathan see in David? David. He sees a man of God who is superior to him in knowing and loving and following God. Now, Jonathan himself is one of these guys. He is a real man of God. He has done exploits like David at least two times so far. Jonathan believes God, trusts God, says, you know what? God doesn't need numbers to do anything. In fact, you and me, my armor bearer, you and me can start a fight and God can do amazing things. Is he up for it? The armor bearer goes, yeah, yeah, I'm right behind you. Let's do this. And he does. So Jonathan is a man who is aware of God. He's with God. He trusts God. He knows that God loves him. Now, David is a guy like Jonathan, but more so. Because it's been 40 days that this guy, Goliath, has gone out there and made fun of Israel and says, come on, I'm just one guy. Boom, boom I'm just one guy. Somebody come out and get me. They go, well, I'm not so crazy about that. And Jonathan didn't do that, see? But David did. And Jonathan sees this guy is a leader of men. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's dedicated to the glory of God. And there's nothing trivial about David. He is a phenomenal guy. And when you meet a guy who is connected to God, that's very moving, isn't it? You get a sense of, wow, this guy knows God. You just get that sense. Now, it doesn't happen very often, does it? It's happened rarely to me. And you know, we're living in a world of people who know and believe in Jesus, right? We have friends, we know people, but how many people do you know that just give you this impression that, my goodness, this guy knows God? doesn't happen that often, does it? Here's Jonathan seeing all these qualities in David, and he goes, wow. He's responding to that. And he even goes to the point of making a covenant with David. Now, a covenant is kind of an agreement. It's a pact. It's an oath where you commit yourself to somebody. It's kind of like marriage, really, because that's what's happening. You have two people who are promising before God to love each other. You think, why does Jonathan have to do that with David? Does he not trust him? It's it's quite the opposite. It's because he trusts him. It's because he's doing this in the love of God. That is then the love of God naturally brings in unity. Paul, the apostle in Colossians 3, calls love the bond of perfection. Uniting, joining together, because that's what relationship is about. You have this unseen, unfelt, but real bond. You're together, and that's fun. It's fun to have relationship. It's not fun to be alone, to be isolated. We've experienced that in the lockdown, haven't we? And all of our relationships are just fragmented and it's not healthy. The normal state, the best state, is when we're in relationship with people. So, here's this invisible bond that says, I am committed to you. We are connected, we're joined, there's a unity, there's something about us where we respond to one another and we have this in common, and this is a fabulous thing. Now, this is the way love works. Love loves to be committed. That's why people get married. To be committed and stay committed. Now, you know, in a relationship like that, it goes through difficult times. Every relationship goes through through difficult times. I don't even need to ask for an amen there. (laughs) Because this is what happens. And yet, the great thing about a relationship with a commitment is it holds. And you get help. For example, in a marriage, you can have one person on the floor not doing very well, but the other person is up and can help. Very rarely is it both people on the floor. It's one or the other, and you kind of go back and forth. How you doing? I'm not doing so good. I'll help you. How's it going today, babe? Ah, Okay, I'll help you. That's the way it's supposed to be. And Jonathan is saying to David, I want to be there for you. And he says, I want you to be there for me. And David says, yeah. This is the thing about love. Love. Now, our relationship with God is called the New Covenant. And God has given us salvation, eternal life, through this promise, this bond, this connection. And it unites us with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. It's a bond that lasts forever and it makes life absolutely worth living. The highest, the best relationship is protected with a covenant that God will not break. And therefore Jesus saves us to the uttermost. Now you know, Jonathan is making a covenant like this, in the love of God with David. And you notice, Jonathan just takes off his robe and says, here, I want you to have this. And here's my sword. Here's my bow. Here is my belt. You think, well, Jonathan, what about you? What are you going to have for yourself? You're giving everything to David. And Jonathan goes, I don't care. (laughs) I love him. I want him to have this stuff. There's more where that came from. But I want to bless David. The love of God gives. That is something that belongs to God in his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the way God is. And that's exactly what Jonathan is doing. Now, here's what the Apostle Paul says about God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, The fact that God gave Jesus for us is also the promise that whatever we need, God's going to give it. Kind of like the time that I was playing with a Christian rock band, and we were going to go overseas on a trip and it was going to cost $1,800 a person. And the leader of the band said, the band as a group, we'll pay half of your ticket and then you gotta pay the other half. And none of us were really working, we were all playing. So I thought, well, how are we gonna do that? And he says, you pray and ask God to supply your needs. And I remember thinking, oh, that's gonna work because I didn't think God was gonna answer my prayers. I thought, who am I? I'm not a brand name, famous person. Why should God even pay attention to me? Christian, thinking this junk, and I was praying, but not very, you know, believing. And I remember God saying to me, "So, you expect me to save your soul from hell, but you can't ask me for nine hundred bucks. Is that it?" And I felt a little silly. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess when you put it that way, it's a little stupid. I'm sorry. And you know, I said, can I have $900, please? And I can't remember how I got the 900. Scout's honor, I cannot remember. But when the band leader said, look, give me whatever you got, I was able to give him 900 bucks and say, it's a miracle. I don't know how it happened. So, God is not only going to save our souls from hell, but he's going to give us what we need. This is the love of God. All right? Now, something about the love of God is that it extends to everybody who loves God. And if you love God, then you're going to love the people who love God. It's a relationship that works with God and with people. If you've got a relationship with God, you're gonna have a relationship with his people. This is what John says in 1 John chapter five. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who was begotten of him. It's just part of the love of God. And so here's Jonathan, who loves God, loves David, and he makes a relationship with him, a covenant. He commits himself. He says, yes, a guy after my own heart. Now, I, I, I go into detail about this. We're four verses. Rob, can you finish the chapter? But I say this because A lot of people read this and they say, oh, Jonathan loves David. It looks like we have a same-sex attraction here. Jonathan and David are homosexuals. And I've actually have some commentaries where it says, you know, people will read what they want to into these stories. And All I can say is you can read into the text anything you want, but it's not being honest with the text. And you're twisting the text, and that's what sin does. It twists and corrupts and perverts. It really corrupts everything good that God made, which God also made, male relationships. Now, God says in no uncertain terms in Leviticus 18, that for a man to lie with a man, like a female, is an abomination. It destroys what God has created through twisting and corrupting what he made to be good, which is the sexual relationship and relationships in general. And for men who are committed to God, like Jonathan and David, to do something that God has clearly called an abomination is not possible at all. It would be an impossible contradiction. Now, you know, it is healthy for men to know one another to admire one another, to commit to one another in friendship. And in the love of God, and that's pure, and it's holy. It's sacred, and God wants that. He wants us to have healthy relationships like Jonathan and David. But the reason why we don't have that a lot of times is because of a lack of commitment. People are there sometimes, and they're not there sometimes. It's like, who can you rely on? And there's a proverb that says, every man proclaims his faithfulness, but a faithful man who can find, right? So, I'm just saying, you run into this very rarely, that you run into somebody that you can have a relationship that you're committed. Because, see, the commitment really comes into importance when there's a difficult time. It's not when everything is fine and happy, anybody can be committed there. It's when it's difficult. And then you find out. You know, what is, what is the quality and the state of our relationship here? If you think out when it's difficult, not much of our relationship, see? So, if you want that kind of a close, committed relationship, what you do is, first of all, be committed to God. It starts with God. And then you be that kind of a person who is committed to others. You don't wait for somebody to be committed to you. You just commit and be that person and then you'll find that person who wants to reciprocate and to be committed to you. But if you wait to commit, you're gonna be ice skating on the lake of fire. It isn't gonna happen. Does everybody hear my voice? To get that kind of a committed relationship, you have to be that committed person. That's who David is, that's who Jonathan is. Okay, now we're gonna file this one away, Jonathan and David, but the rest of this chapter is completely different. It's about an utterly broken relationship, all right? Do you need a little something to drink? All right, maybe not. Sorry, don't die here. Okay. Do you want something to drink right over there? Okay, all right, I'm with you. Okay. See, we can do this. All right, the rest of the chapter. You notice in verse two, Saul took David that day and wouldn't let him go home to his father's house anymore. Up until this time, David has been serving with Saul, playing music, being his armor bearer, but he also goes back to his father's house in Bethlehem to take care of the sheep. And it's kind of a, David takes time off, because it's not sheep. He takes time to be with the Lord. But at this point, Saul says, what a guy. I cannot lose this guy. And from then on, Saul takes him as a permanent part of his staff. right, so you're not going anywhere. You're a valuable guy, I want you right here. David goes, okay. So who wouldn't want David? He's a great guy, man, let's keep him around. And the problem is it doesn't last very long. Let's read in verse six, well, verse five. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Man, the rest of this chapter has a unique viewpoint. We get to look inside Saul's head and see his thoughts. Now nobody can see this but God. But he caused these things to be written down for our instruction. Verse five shows us a summary of things as they are happening on the outside. If anybody was looking on what's happening with David and Saul, they would say, oh, Saul is promoting David and sending David out. And wherever David goes, he succeeds. He's prospering. Whoa, things look great. What a great team. But that's what things like look like on the outside. This chapter, the rest of it, shows how we got there. But what we're gonna see is that Saul's thoughts are not what they look like on the outside. They're very different. It looks like he's doing good things, but in reality, he's intending bad things to happen to David. So it starts as they're coming back from this big victory over the Philistines, and especially the Philistine, that's what they called Goliath. And David kills him and takes off his head. The Philistine. So it's right after this great victory, and the women are coming out, and they're doing their tambourines and things. Woo-hoo. And they're singing this song, and it blows Saul's mind. They're only ascribing thousands to me and to David, 10,000. And he's jealous and he's angry. And he says, what more can he have but the kingdom? And he begins to suspect David. Now, relationships are built on trust. And you cannot trust somebody when you suspect them. Does everybody get that? Mutually exclusive. And if you don't trust somebody, you don't have a relationship with them. And from this point on, Saul has no relationship with David. So, verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the house So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. So we've seen so far that because Saul disobeyed God, the spirit of God left Saul. And now this evil spirit causes Saul to kind of flip out, kind of like raving. And his servant said, why don't you get somebody to play for you? And that will calm you and make you better. And so he said, yeah, find me a guy. And that was David. So here's David playing his harp while Saul's having a hard time. And Saul's kind of playing with his spear, you know. And he's going, you know, I could pin him to the wall with this. (laughs) Like that. And David goes, whoop. Just like in the movies. Twice. And Saul could kind of sweep that one into the carpet and say, whoa, that, that evil spirit kind of got to me this time. You know, uh, sorry about that, David. David goes, yeah, that's okay. Right? But... the first instance, but then look what happens later, verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Okay, referencing with verse five, says David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. So see, this is the point where David is promoted. And verse 13, Saul really doesn't want him to be around. So he says, I'm going to promote David. Now, what he wants is for David to be promoted to a very publicly prominent spot with a lot of authority and responsibility. And yet it can happen when you take a young guy and give him sudden fame and prominence and authority that it goes to his head gets a little cocky and starts feeling like, hey, I can do whatever I want. And then you do something stupid in front of everybody and you are disgraced. And that's what Saul's hoping for, to promote David so that the sudden rush of prominence and fame and responsibility cause him to do something stupid and wipe out. But that doesn't happen. David is a serious, disciplined man of God. And he continues with his lifestyle of meditating in the Word of God. And all the more when he takes on this public responsibility, it doesn't say so in the text but he behaves wisely, and this is the result of meditation in the word of God. So instead of being a foolish youth and wiping out, he's demonstrating wisdom beyond his years. This is what happens when you meditate on the word of God. It's a promise. It says, I have wisdom more than my teachers because I meditate in your word. That's in Psalm 119. So David is, first of all, faithful to God. That's why he's faithful in this new position. And so Saul's scheme backfires. Instead of hurting David, it actually makes David well known. The whole nation is looking at David be a leader and be a wise leader. All right, so David Saul has another scheme to kill David and that's through marriage. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel the maholathite as a wife. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved Saul, uh, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, "'You shall be my son-in-law today.' And Saul commanded his servants, "'Communicate with David secretly and say, "'Look, the king has delight in you, "'and all his servants love you. "'Now therefore become the king's son-in-law.' So David's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, "'Does it seem to you a light thing "'to be a king's son-in-law, "'seeing I'm a poor and lightly esteemed man?' And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law, Now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. So... Saul says to David, here's my daughter. Why don't you get married? Now, he owes David his daughter because that was what Saul offered to the guy who killed Goliath. Marry my daughter. uh, Your family will be free of taxes. Nobody picked up on that offer, but David killed Goliath, and Saul really owes him his daughter. So he's not just you know, being generous, but he's thinking with this. I want to encourage David to be valiant so that he'll go out there for love and do something stupid and get himself killed. He's using his daughter as a pawn. Thanks, Dad. But nobody knows this except Saul, do you, do you notice that? Mirab doesn't know, David doesn't know, nobody knows but God knows. Now, the problem is David says, well, who am I? What is my father's house? I don't have the dowry suitable for a king's daughter. And so Saul doesn't know how to overcome that and he kinda snubs David, saves his daughter, gets her married to somebody else. But then it comes up again. Michael, the younger daughter. Why wouldn't she love David? I mean, the guy is incredible. So she loves him and I guess he likes her. And Saul knows how to do this this time. Don't worry about a dowry. You know, just kill my enemies. It's kind of gross what he asks for, but David goes, yeah, and instead of 100, he kills 200, 200 of the king's enemies, and Saul thought, I thought I was going to get him killed, and instead he actually did it, and now I have to give up my daughter. So Saul has been scheming and manipulating, and his plans backfire at every point, because he wants to do David harm, and it's not working, to where we get to verse 30 here, and it's essentially the same as verse five. The Philistines go out to war, David opposes them, he behaves wisely, David is greatly esteemed in Israel, he's public, he's a leader, He's successful, the people love him, and Saul has been trying to destroy him, but instead, it's only worked out in David's favor. So from here on in, Saul is a complete enemy of David. And three times in this chapter, we've seen Saul's reaction. In verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. David. Verse 15, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. Verse 29, and Saul was still more afraid of David. And he's afraid because he suspects that David is gonna take everything from him, and especially the kingdom. So when you look at this, you think, you know what, Saul is completely wrong. Does everybody get that? David is not responsible for Saul's problems. Saul is responsible. And what what do you think would happen if Saul just broke down and talked to God and says, God, what's going on? He's going to take away my kingdom. What's going on? God would say, You know what? I gave you that job. I picked you. And then you disobeyed me. So I said, You're fired. You've lost your job. But you're hanging on to it. You know what? David is going to take over the kingdom because I picked him. He is my chosen, anointed king, and you're fired. You've already lost your kingdom and he will take over because I want him to be there and nothing you do is going to stop that. You're fighting against me and you cannot win. That's what God would have told him, but guess what? Saul never asks him. Saul has no relationship with God which is weird because we read of twice that the Holy Spirit came upon Saul mightily, enabled him, did things in his life. Amazing, and yet Saul never pursues God. Wouldn't you say, God, do it again? Come upon me mightily. Doesn't even occur to him. Why would I do that? He's just doing his own thing. You can't have a relationship with somebody who doesn't want a relationship with you. Have you ever tried? In a relationship, there has to be two people who are into it. And if one of them is not into it, you haven't got a relationship. It doesn't matter how committed you are, how much you give, makes no difference. Mm -hmm. We haven't got a relationship here. So, here's Saul saying, no, I'm gonna hold on to my kingdom. No, I'm gonna protect everything I have. I can't lose it. And he's going to lose everything and he's already lost it. He's his own worst enemy. But see, you can't think, oh, poor Saul. You know what you got to think? Poor me. Because sin puts us in the same boat as Saul. Sin is this thing where I'm the boss, I'm in charge, and nobody runs my life but me. And we think, you know, if I submit to Jesus and give Him everything, and He's the Lord of my life, I'm going to lose everything. We sort of smell this. It's an aroma of death, and we think, Argh. What will he do to me if he's my boss? Will he make me marry somebody I don't like and then send us to Africa? What will he do to me? So you don't think that because everybody has already lost everything. We're still alive for a little while, but death will take everything from our grip, and even our own souls. We've already lost everything, just like Saul. So, Jesus is gonna rule the world. He's gonna rule every one of us. And again, it's inevitable. There's Psalm 2, where the leaders of the world and the whole planet takes counsel against God, against it as noted, and says, we're going to break his bonds, we're going to cast his cords away from us, and God laughs. And he says, yet I have installed my king on my holy hill in Zion, in Jerusalem. And that's the last place in the world anybody wants that to happen. And he says it will happen. It will happen. Now the entire world is going to vote against that. And God is not a democracy. (laughs) He is a theocracy. He's going to say that's tough. Because Jesus is going to rule the world Right. So, you know, Jesus is gonna dethrone every king. He alone is gonna rule. So the point of wisdom, at this point in the story, at this point in our lives, the point of wisdom is to get off the throne now, while we still can. The crazy thing is, is that Saul gets major opportunities to change his mind, get off the throne, and he won't do it. But that's shown to us so we don't go down that way. And instead we say, you know what? I get off the throne, I'm off. Jesus, you take the throne. Now, What I find interesting is that Jonathan didn't lose a thing in submitting to David. He just says, You know what? You're a fabulous guy. And it's right for me to have a covenant with you. It's even right for me to give you everything because you're a great guy. David saved Israel by killing a guy that nobody else even dared face. Tremendous. But Jesus is better than David. David kills one guy. And that's fabulous because I couldn't do it and neither could you. Just picture yourself going up against a nine and a half foot guy and you got a sling. How's this thing work? You're dead. Nice try, next. But here's Jesus going up against the devil, going up against sin, going up against everything this world can offer that's a cheat and a fake. And Jesus dies for our sins and he rises from the dead. He's better than David. And he says, if you save your life, you're gonna lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. Nobody who comes to Jesus is gonna lose anything. You're only going to gain. That's not true. You're gonna lose one thing, and that is your worst enemy which is you. But when Jesus is ruling in your life, you're gonna find things happening to you like David. David has no clue that Saul wants him dead. And yet God is protecting him, leading him, guiding him. You have no clue what kind of things God is saving you from even right now that you don't even know about. You're going, what a great day. And God's blacking for you left and right. No, you won't. It's just amazing. We don't have to be in control. We don't have to be the boss. It's far better when Jesus is the boss. So, Enter into that new covenant. And don't be afraid to lose it all for Jesus. Does everybody get that? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you that you show us how wrong it is to fight for ourselves and to hold on to what we cannot keep. Thank you for showing us how empty and futile it is to fight against you. Thank you for showing us how fabulous Jesus is and how we need him Thank you, Lord, and I pray for us today. Help us to be willing to lose that which we cannot keep in order to gain that which we cannot lose. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for you watching over us, protecting us, and keeping us. Draw all of us to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.